Father, you are our one defense. You are our righteousness. And God, we certainly need you. Especially in this hour. Father, as we come before the throne of God, we come so boldly. Because the author of Hebrews says we have access to the throne room of grace where we bring our needs before you, our supplications, our intercessions. We trust you with each one. And now, Father, as we open your word, we thank you for it. We thank you that we can trust it from in the beginning of Genesis into amen of Revelation, that you're going to speak to us, that your word never returns void. I pray, Father, that over these next few moments you put your thoughts in my mind, your words in my mouth. We do pray collectively, Father, that if there is anyone here who does not have a saving, redemptive relationship with you, whether here in person or joining us online, that today would be that day where they bend their knee to a sovereign God and embrace the gift of salvation made available through a relationship with King Jesus. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to be attentive to your word. Help us to receive what the Spirit says to the church today. And we'll give you the praise, the honor, and glory for that. In Jesus' name. If you agree with me in prayer, would you say amen? Man, we've had worship today. It's been good. And looking forward to joining in the Word of God, to worship God even fuller today. Join me in Matthew chapter 5. If you're a guest here with us, we've been preaching together through, um, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the introductory remarks of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been preaching through the Beatitudes, or the attitudes that should be. And that's what we've been looking at. We need an attitude adjustment. Don't look at your neighbor and say, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, but we all need from time to time an attitude adjustment. And that's what we found in these Beatitudes. The Lord is adjusting our attitudes. But we're in Matthew chapter 5. That's where we've been coming from. We'll be today and for the next couple of weeks as well. And as you're turning there to find your place in the Scripture, I'll share with you that I heard about uh, a Navy ship once that was out in the South Pacific just kind of cruising along, and uh, up in the bird's nest, a spotter noticed a desert island out there. It's uninhabited, of course, and, but, but something really caught this spotter's attention that was in the bird nest because this desert, deserted island that was out in the middle of nowhere had smoke coming from what looked to be a hut that was constructed there. It was built there. Obviously, there's nobody supposed to be on this island, so it caught the attention of this, this guy in the bird's nest. He sent word to the captain. They turned the ship around and made their way to this deserted island, and sure enough, it was a hut. And there was smoke coming from the chimney of this hut. They pulled up to this hut. They got out, and they noticed a man there waving his hands. He's running frantically towards this naval ship. He finally gets up to him and says, I'm so glad to see you. I've been out here for five years. I was out on a little fishing vessel by myself. A terrible storm came out of nowhere. I was swept from my little ship. It began to, to take on water. It, it sank in my life jacket. I was preserved, but, but I drifted out to this deserted island. I swam here for the last five, maybe even six years. This is where I've been. All alone. 
And the captain spoke up. He said, wait a minute. So you're all alone. The man said, yes, I'm all alone. I've been out here again five or six years. I'm so glad to have seen you. He said, I've got a question for you. If you're all alone, why are there three different huts built right beside each other? He said, well, that's easy. The first one, the one in the middle, I live in that hut. The one with smoke coming out of the chimney. To its right is the church that I attend. The one on the left, that's the church I used to go to until I got mad. And moved on. <laughs> People just can't be satisfied, can they? I guess the wise philosopher Mick Jagger got it right. I can't get no. I guess he's right on that a little bit. We can't be satisfied. A couple of years ago during the height of the pandemic, the number one question that was searched in the Google search bar was this. How do I find happiness? How do I find happiness? In our search for happiness, we often become dependent on external means to make us internally happy. Those things are manifested in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's material things. If we just have more of this, then we'll truly be satisfied, we'll be content, we'll truly be happy. Sometimes it's manifested not in material things, but in relationships. If this person would just go out with me, or if, or if that person with, would marry me, or if we could just have a better relationship within the home, then I'll truly... And, and professional positions, if I just attain this, if, if I just get this promotion, and, or, or just get tenure, then I'll, I'll finally be happy. I'll be content. I'll be satisfied. I'm comfortable in saying that I think the top three things that, that we think will bring us contentment and satisfaction and happiness in this life could be summarized in this. Prosperity, pleasure, or people. That's what we're longing for. Satisfaction for happiness. And most of us look one of those three directions in order to find it. Prosperity, pleasure, or people. The problem with that is, once those external circumstances, those external things go south, so does our sense of well-being. So does our sense of satisfaction, our sense of pleasure, our sense of happiness. Some even rely on intoxicants. When this happens, when this takes place, to numb the fact that they can't seem to find happiness and satisfaction and contentment in this life that we live in. In the Beatitudes that we're studying together, we find our Lord teaching us where true satisfaction comes from. Where, where true joy, true peace, true excitement, true peace, true, true blessing, where it actually comes from. How lasting happiness can actually be attained here on this earth. I find it especially compelling that it's, that it's these Beatitudes that serve as the introductory remarks to the greatest sermon that has ever or will ever be preached. Think about that. It, this really dispels the, the notion, the attitude that the Christian life is to be dull and to be boring and to be stuffy and deficient of fun and laughter. If you've ever wondered, does, does God really care? Does our Lord really care with all the things going on in our world? Does He really care about my well-being? Think about this. The greatest sermon that will ever be preached, a, a sermon that as Jesus preached this sermon, knows because He's omniscient that this would be read by untold millions of people who would seek to live out these principles, here's how he begins the greatest sermon that will ever be preached. This word, blessed. Happy. 
Greek, markarios. Markarios, it means to be happy. Greatest sermon that will ever be preached, Jesus began it by talking about our well-being, about our happiness. If you've ever wondered, if if God is really concerned about your well-being, think about that fact. The greatest sermon ever preached begins with the word blessed. The word blundered times over the course of both the Old and the New Testament. 600 times Jesus deals with this thing called blessing. There, There are benedictions, 105 benedictions in the Bible. The benediction is at the end of the service, that thing that I read, that passage of Scripture that I read, it means blessing. A blessing spoken over people, spoken over a congregation. It's a benediction. The priest would use it in the Old Testament. The apostles in the New. Today, pastors have have the privilege of announcing prayerfully divine blessings, a benediction over the people. By the way, I think that's needed today. In this world where we're constantly beat up, this world hostile towards what we believe and and who we worship, increasingly hostile towards that, we're beat up all week. I think we need a blessing to be read over us before we go back out into this world. It means blessing, 105 blessings read over God's people in the Old and the New Testament. These Beatitudes remind us that Jesus is inviting weary souls that have chased after satisfaction and chased after happiness and all these different ways and have come up wanting. He's inviting us to come unto him because it's only in and through Christ that we could find true happiness. Only in and through Christ that we could find true peace and the satisfaction that we're actively searching for. So so when people are, are googling happiness and how they can find happiness, what they're actually searching for without even realizing it is for a deeper connection with God. Because that's the only thing that could bring it. They're searching for an intimate connection with God, a transformation that unites us with our Heavenly Father and is made available only through our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning we're studying the fourth beatitude, the fourth way to happiness, The way to blessing, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, Blessed, happy, markarios, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Say that with me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, do you believe that? Say amen. Now, smile a little bit like it's true. All right, now say it with me again with some joy about you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now as we break this text down, the first thing that comes to my mind as I read through it and as I think through it, as it has been the case with each of the Beatitudes that we've studied through thus far, we seem to see associate, as we've already seen, blessing with poverty, blessing with mourning, blessing with, with meekness. We don't put those words together, neither do we usually put the words happy and hungry together in the same sentence. We just don't do that. Y- y'all have seen the Snickers commercials. You're not yourself when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. That, that's, that's who we are. The fact is, happy and hungry don't seem to go together. And that's true for us. And we're people who are a people of plenty. Most of us have cupboards that are full, refrigerators that are full. I caught myself, Dennis, I caught myself a while back. It was during Thanksgiving. I opened our pantry up and stuff fell out. I found myself, this is how foolish we could be, complaining about how much food 
we had in our pantry. How, how ridiculous is that? We're a people of plenty. We're people who have plenty. Food is not a problem for us. I, I, I get that. We understand that. But, but to its original audience, when Jesus spoke these words, they would have been taken aback by it. While we don't see happy and hungry together, who's going to preach, my stomach's already rumbling, right? We don't put these things together, happy and hungry, but the original audience that hears this and reads it in the first century for the first time, they really don't put the words happy and hungry together in the same sentence. These really do feel like a, a contradiction of terms for them. The kind of hunger that, that Jesus is talking about is something that's not so familiar with us. But most of the industrialized, unindustrialized world today would get it just like that first century world got it. The latest data indicates that 40,000 people die every day of starvation, of malnutrition, food-related issues, malnourishment. To put that into perspective, every three days more people die globally of starvation than they did when the first atomic bomb was dropped in Japan. Every three days. It's astounding to think about. When this sermon was first preached, the audience that would have been there listening to Jesus utter these words, and in that first century as these words were read over congregations and read over these churches, the, the, the audience would have been personally familiar with what real hunger was. Dangerous malnourishment was a real issue in the first century Middle Eastern world. But here Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger. What's happening here in this text? I find it interesting. I find it very baptistic, actually. I, I find it interesting that, that eating is often associated in the Bible with blessing. Can somebody say amen right there? The Old Testament, think about this for a moment. Feasts and festivals to, to the people of God to commemorate the work of God and even the work that He has yet to do in the Old Testament time and the coming of the Messiah. It's associated with food, blessing, and feasting are together. Jesus first Miracle recorded at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee. He, he turns water into wine at this great big banquet, this feast that was taking place. I find it interesting that the only miracle of Jesus that, that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account, is the feeding of thousands with five loaves and two fish. Jesus tells the church how we're to remember him. We did this just last week. How you're to remember me from here on out. How does he tell us to do that? Over a meal. The last supper in the book of Acts, the early church. What, what does the Bible teach us about? Yes, they, they, they appointed to the apostles' doctrine. They devoted themselves to that. But the breaking of bread from house to house Think about that for a moment. At one time, in one day, we're all going to be reunited in heaven, all believers at a great big banquet table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessing and eating, happiness and feasting throughout the narrative of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, they're paired at the hip. So, so think about this for a moment. In just a few moments, we'll be dismissed. And what are we going to do? Some of you are thinking about it already, I can tell. We're going to eat somewhere. And whether we're gathering around our tables at our homes with our families or, or out at a restaurant with our families, or whether it's a first Wednesday night meal where we're fellowshipping around tables with brothers and sisters, we're doing more as Christians than just feeding our bellies and stuffing our mouth. We're doing something holy, something important, something meaningful, something worshipful. 
when we eat and fellowship with one another. So these all serve as reminders that, that blessing and feasting, again, they're, they're paired together in the Scriptures. And here Jesus said, blessed are those who are hungry. What's taking place here? If you mark in your Bibles, underline the word hunger. Underline the word hunger. The word that's used here is the same word. Same Greek word used here. The same word that Jesus spoke after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. A hunger. A hunger. So what we're talking about here, we're not talking about a passing craving that he's having. We're not just talking about needing a Snickers bar game. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about an intense desire. An intense desire. But here in this beatitude, it's an intense desire, but it's not for food. When Jesus says hunger and thirst, this, this word thirst is the same idea as when from the cross, our Lord Jesus said, I thirst. Same idea conveyed here. It's, 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 not, it's not just a simple desire, a little cotton mouth that's going on. It's an intense desire. But it's not for water. Jesus is not talking about physical hunger. He's not talking about physical thirst when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And I also need to note this very quickly, and we're going to move on. Within all of us is a desire to attain certain things in life. These desires are not wrong or sinful in and of themselves. Let me say this. It's appropriate and even good to desire things and to work towards them as long as they're within the scope of God's will for our lives. There's not a thing sinful about ambition, about motivation, about success, as long as those things are rightly prioritized. Jesus, though, is not talking about ambition for something greater in life. He's not just talking about motivation for, for things of this. That's not what's happening here. So, so what is happening? Note this. Number one, Jesus is telling us to pursue. He's telling us what we're to pursue. Look again at Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what, church? For righteousness. For righteousness. Blessed are those, again, not, not a physical hunger, not a physical thirst, but, but have an insatiable hunger, an insatiable thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is this, it's just... Right and just. That's what the word means. To be right and to be just. To act in, in accord with divine or with moral law. Jesus is saying here, blessed are those who have an insatiable appetite. A, a, a desire to perfectly follow the law of God. To always act justly. To always live rightly. To always be good. To always do good. But here is the problem. We don't always do these things, do we? Matter of fact, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There is none righteous. Not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. For there is none who does good. No, not one. And he, three, both Old and New Testament says there is none righteous. He said, wait a minute, though, preacher. I try really, really hard. To, to do right all of the time and to think right all of the time and to speak right all of the time and always act in accordance with the Word of God, the law of God, to, to keep God's moral and divine law perfectly. Here's what the Bible says about our very best crack at that. 
Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness is but filthy rags. And, and all, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have, have taken us away. The Jews that are sitting in this audience as Jesus preaches this, they, they had a desire for the kind of righteousness that, that Jesus said we're to hunger and we're to seek after. But attaining was it impossible. In and of themselves, it doesn't mean they didn't try. They, they gave their best effort at it. I am going to be on my best behavior. Have you ever noticed when we set out to do that, that's the hardest? I'm going to be on my best behavior. I'm going to live in keeping with every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. I'm going to live flawlessly. I'm going to think perfectly. I'm going to act righteously. And I'm going to do it all the time without exception. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they prided themselves on just that. That they would keep the Old Testament law. And they believed in doing so. If I just keep this law, I will be righteous before God. Listen to what Jesus says about those Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law. Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. Look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside... You're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The Pharisees, nor the people in Jesus' audience, that day could attain righteousness in and of themselves. They couldn't act right all the time. They, they couldn't think right all of the time. They couldn't do right all of the time. It was not in their power. It was not in their strength. It was not in their wisdom, not in their obedience, not in their action that they would be declared righteousness. None of us, none of us can say, look at me. Ain't I something? None of us. That's the point of the law. To show. To show us that we can't keep this law and keep it perfectly. To show us that we should good behavior. And neither they nor we can, etern- can attain internal righteousness through external means or efforts. Yet, Jesus says here in the text, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now this is vital. This is vital. Because he's telling us to pursue something that we can't attain. What's happening here? Well, if you're taking notes, not only are we told what to pursue, righteousness. This is key, because if you stop there, we're all in trouble. He tells us who to pursue. He tells us who to pursue. It's not really what we're to pursue, but who we're to pursue. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, there's a powerful messianic prophecy that was made about the coming Messiah. Our Lord Jesus Christ and the prophet, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says this. He describes the coming Christ this way. He is the Lord of righteousness. He is the Lord of righteousness. Listen very carefully. Jesus is the righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's not saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after doing good all of the time, being perfect all of the time, because none of us can have that. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after me. After me. He is the righteousness of God in human flesh. He and righteousness are inseparable. 
So when he says in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's not talking about hungering and thirsting for a particular action or a particular behavior that's going to lead to blessing, but earnestly desiring a person, earnestly desiring himself. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after me. Listen carefully. There's nothing that, that you can do There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that anyone sitting in the audience that Jesus was preaching on this day with the Sea of Galilee in the background, this Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing that the Pharisees could do in and of themselves. Listen carefully, that will make you righteous. There's not enough. There's not enough. You can't put enough money in the offering plate when it's passed around to be declared righteous by God. You can't be kind enough. Should we be kind? Yes, by all means we should be kind. But no amount of kindness or compassion or seeking after justice or loving mercy, no amount of our actions will ever give us right standing before God. In and of ourselves, we've already talked through this, completely and utterly bankrupt. And because of that, on our own, there's not enough good. No amount of good that we can do that would give us a right standing before God on the day we stand before Him. And listen carefully, whether here in person or online, and we all will stand before Him. The Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed once for every man to die, and then after this the judgment. We will all stand before the King. And when we stand before the king, our lives are examined. Every thought, every motive, every deed, every action. And and based on our own merits, none of us, none of us, not Billy Graham, not Gandhi, none of us will be declared righteous because of our works. Not, Not a single one of us. You say, well, my granny was perfect. Your granny will stand before God and she will give an account. And based on her own merits, I don't care how good her biscuits were. She will not be declared righteous because of what she has done, what she has accomplished. It won't happen. So the question becomes, oh gosh, you mean to say that that I can't put my hands in worship enough or come to church enough or preach enough sermons in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God based on my own merits? I mean to say that. I mean to say that, and you say, well, wait a minute, is is there any hope? Is there any hope? Is there hope for anyone? That's the whole point of this beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is he telling us? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the whole point of this beatitude. That's why Jesus is saying, I'm not, don't hunger and thirst after doing good. There's nothing wrong with doing good, but we don't do good be, so that we can be saved. We do good because we've been saved. What's happening here in the text, Jesus say he's not saying hunger and thirst after keeping this law and keeping these regulations and checking these boxes, and if you get all of them right, you'll be satisfied. No, no. Jesus is saying, I was what you could never be, righteous. I lived 33 years perfectly, never breaking the law of God, something that none of us have even come close to doing. He who knew no sin, that's, that's Jesus, 
became that we might become righteous. So that we would be declared righteous. Who are the righteous? Who could stand before God and, and gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Here's the answer to that question. Those who have trusted Christ alone to save them. To redeem them. To give them a new life. Those who have trusted Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus good deeds. Not Jesus plus charitable giving. Not Jesus plus anything. But just plain old Jesus. Jesus alone. That's who finds blessing. In this life, I found something extremely interesting when I was working through this text several weeks ago, studying about the way that it's actually constructed in the original language. The words that Jesus speaks here, that we've just read, specifically the way he speaks them, would have been really odd to those who were listening to it. The way that he says what he says, he says in a very unique way, in a very rare way. The way that Jesus speaks here, if it was spoken in, in a way that would be familiar with everybody in attendance, would have read this way. And it's going to sound strange to us. It would have read this way. Blessed is he who is hungry for of bread and thirsty for of water. That's the way it would have been spoken if it was spoken in a normal way. In the English language, it would have read this way. Blessed is he who is hungry for some bread. And hungry for some water, but that's not how Jesus speaks. He, he speaks in a very different way, a very uncommon way here. And the way in which Jesus speaks this text, he's conveying blessing for those who don't want a bite but want the whole daggum loaf. Those who don't want a sip but want the whole well. That's what Jesus is saying here. What he's telling us is that blessed is who want all of me. All of me. Not just a little, but all of me. I'm going to say something. I'm going to move on. I, this is not in my notes, so I'm not going to charge you for it. It's free, okay? What's happening here is, is we have far too many in the Christian church today who want to nibble on what aspects of Christianity and the aspects of the Christian faith they find suitable but leave the rest on the plate. We have far too many in, in our world, in our culture today who want a, a sip of a following Christ but not all of it. In other words, Lord, give me heaven, but I'll handle things here on earth the way I want to. Lord, be my Savior, but, but I'll be my own Lord. Jesus says there's blessed for those who just want a bite, but want the whole thing, who want all of me, who don't mark through the portions of the Bible or omit those portions of Scripture that don't suit their lifestyle or, or fit with their own worldview, but but. All of me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. After Christ. After Christ. So we've seen in our text what we're to pursue if we want satisfaction and peace and blessing and happiness in life. More specifically, we're told in our text who to pursue. Jesus is the righteousness of God. But lastly, we have a promise declared in this text. Look again at Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Say this with me. For they shall be filled. Wow. Blessed are those who have an insatiable desire for all of Jesus. 
for they shall be filled. This literally, literally, this word filled, literally is translated satisfied. They'll be satisfied. Let me give you the translation that's found in the Kyle International Version. That's not out for publication yet. They shall be stuffed. Stuffed. Many of you know the first several days of January, I I have a Daniel fast, and I I eat cardboard and water for 21 days. Put a little salt on it. It tastes out pretty good. When I finally got to break that fast, and I got meat, I ate until I was stuffed. Miserable. You know, but the good kind of miserable? Filled. Filled. Satisfied. That's what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after me with everything you got and want all of me because you're going to be satisfied. This is what Jesus was speaking of in John 6, 35 when he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. You'll be filled. You'll be satisfied. When I was growing up uh, in the little Methodist church that I grew up in, we sang a song, and, and I couldn't remember the words to it, so I wrote them down. But, but I love this old hymn. It was called Satisfied. That was the name of the hymn. All my life long I have panted for a drink of some cool spring that I hope would quench the burning of thirst that I felt within. How soul has long craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his life. I am saved. He satisfies. To hear this morning, and you've been searching, you've been hungry, you've been thirsting, and, and you've tried to find this and that and material possessions and people and all these other things. And, and, and maybe you've even you've reached out and you've grabbed some of this stuff. And you feasted on it, but you found it just doesn't satisfy. Jesus satisfies. And if you'll trust Him, you'll make Him the Lord of your life, you'll be satisfied. Now, does that mean you'll always have an easy life? Does that mean you'll go problem-free? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. In fact, trust Christ, some of the problems just begin. Satan comes against you in opposition. But I'll promise you this, it sure is good. There's nothing like it. And it lasts. It lasts. It truly does last. And maybe today you are a believer like me. You have, you have trusted Christ. You've given your life to Him. You have been satisfied by salvation. But I want to close for you with an important thought. If you're already in Christ, I want you, I want you to hear this. This is so rich. The way this passage is constructed in the original Greek should read this way. Blessed are those who keep on hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Keep on hungering and thirsting. What's happening here? Why? Well, there's a reason. I can tell you from personal experience that at times, though I know Jesus said it, sometimes I choose junk food. Anybody else? Sometimes I, I choose to feast on junk food. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And the thing I found about junk food is this. The more I eat of it, the more I lose my appetite for what's actually good for me. 
I lose my appetite for it. I remember my first semester of college. I grew up so well. And so, man, I've, I've shared with you before my testimony. I couldn't have had better parents. But my mama could cook. Oh, she could cook. And I grew up eating good. Everything out of the garden or killed on the farm. I moved off my first semester of college and found out not everybody eats that way. I spent my first semester eating ramen noodles, Vienna sausages, and Snickers bars. And the problem with that is I got used to those. And when I got back home, I didn't have the same taste for what was really good for me. Same thing happens in our spiritual lives. When we feast on the junk food of this world, we'll lose a taste for what really matters, what really nourishes us. Not only that, but when we fill ourselves with junk food, here's what happens. We, we gorge ourselves and we think we're satisfied, but a couple hours later, we're already hungry again. This world cannot satisfy. It cannot fill us. But the Bible teaches us in Psalm 107.9, For He satisfies the longing soul, and He fills the hungry soul with goodness. I invite you to take the psalmist up on his offer in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who trusts in him. Happy. Blessed. Content is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. For he shall be filled. Amen. Let's bow together. Considering the Word of God as it has been preached today, prayerfully, rightly divided, seeing that the Lord is good. Maybe today, whether in person or whether you're online watching, have you been trying to satisfy the longing of your soul with the things of this world? with relationships maybe, with substances, with material goods, money, position, popularity, pleasure. Those things may satisfy, but only for a season. That satisfaction is only temporary. It never lasts. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to hear me. If you repent of your sin and trust Him alone for salvation, He will fill you. Your, your deepest longings. He will satisfy your soul. Would you admit your sin? Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you because of my sin. I deserve hell. There's nothing in and of myself that would commend me to God, would grant me entrance into heaven. There's nothing I have done or will ever be able to do that would declare me righteous before you. But I trust that you have done what I could not do for myself. You are righteousness. Forgive me of my sin. Save me. 
If you'll pray that prayer with sincerity, that'll take place, and it'll take place today. Or maybe you're in Christ, and like me, you would admit you filled yourself or are filling yourself with some junk food right now. You're going to regret that, dear brother, dear sister. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin your appetite for what matters. Or it's going to leave you feeling like you're full, but you're really empty. Oh, God has so much more for you than junk food. He loves you so. Would you turn from that sin and feast upon the things of God? You'll be glad that you did. Father, in Jesus' name, your word is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Thank you for that. It's not in my eloquence because I don't have any. If there's any power today, it's been in your word. So, Father, today, Father, I pray that if there is any person who does not know you as Savior, that God, today would be that day. Would not delay any further. But they would trust you. And Father, if not today, I pray that you would make them miserable until they come into a relationship with you. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who know you, who may be feasting on junk food, Give us an appetite for your word, for worship, for being with the people of God, for you. Help us to pursue all of you. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.